Hey, y'all. Welcome back to K9360. It's Wednesday. This is Jill. I'm your host. I'm here on Wednesdays to talk dogs and all things dogs related. And uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging out with me and giving a listen. Last week, uh, if you were here and joining us, you um, were part of our conversation uh, that's an overview, was an overview, and a particular um, look at something that happened in Maine earlier this month, a story of a very desperately ill puppy who ingested a foreign object that perforated his stomach and was in danger of perforating other things and created a rupture and a leak. He was very, very sick for at least a day before his owners brought him to the veterinary clinic. And uh, the extent of his pretty serious injury looked like it was going to take a $10,000 surgery to uh, resolve. And after some protracted discussion with the owners, they agreed to surrender the puppy to the clinic, um, to somebody who could take care of that $10,000 surgery and give that puppy a chance to survive his experience um, because they just didn't have the means, which is, I think, a fair and realistic um, response, right? And it's nice to have an option uh, if someone can take over for you. And this family, um, along with their veterinary clinic, were... um, attacked in social media in all the ways that we know such a thing to be possible and it resulted in the main state veterinary medical center which was the the uh, veterinary hospital that took care of little jacks during his ordeal um, having death threats among other things threats to have their clinic burned down um, pretty scary stuff Uh, in in and for a profession that already deals a lot with trying to manage owners' often unrealistic expectations about what veterinary medicine is, how it's practiced, and and probably most importantly of all, how it gets paid for, right? So I wanted to extend that conversation a little bit. Um, Last week I mentioned the notion of, of... veterinary consolidators and the real possibility that the veterinary clinic you patronize could be a veterinary clinic that is actually not owned by the clinicians that you see uh, when you take your pet in, but is owned by a corporate entity with a an office in a galaxy far, far away, right? And while that may or may not seem like a big deal, um, it does affect in some pretty profound ways, the way that veterinary medicine is understood by us, by we um, owners uh, who bring our patients to those clinics, and how veterinary medicine is understood or practiced when the clinic is owned by non-veterinarians, right? So it's complex. And I thought it might be worth a little bit closer 
look, a little bit more of an investigation beyond the simple, I'm sure it's not so simple, uh, mathematics, right, of, of acquisitions and mergers and profit centers and corporate consolidation and what happens to something small when it becomes owned by something very, very, very big. I'm sure there are things that are gained. I'm equally sure there are things that are lost. And so to help us with that understanding so that we can make better decisions about where we want to take our dogs and cats for care, I turn to a favorite resource. This is Gerald Tannenbaum. Uh, His book is called Veterinary Ethics, and the subtitle is Animal Welfare, Client Relations, Competition, and collegiality. And in his preface, he has an interesting paragraph about who should read this book. This book on veterinary ethics, right? He says, who should read this book? Everyone who has ever had any contact with a veterinarian or whose life is affected in some way by an animal that comes in contact with a veterinarian should be interested in veterinary ethics. Therefore, everyone should be interested in veterinary ethics. Everyone either owns an animal or is affected in some way by the veterinary treatment of animals. Pet owners are certainly affected by what veterinarians do, but so are people who eat or wear animal products, who enjoy animal entertainments such as horse racing, who have benefited from medical research that has been conducted using animals, or people who care about the environment a major part of which consists of animals. Many different kinds of people should therefore find a great deal of interest in this book. Pet owners, pet lovers, and pet breeders will learn much about a profession too many of them take for granted. Physicians and biomedical ethicists might consider the discussions of euthanasia and other aspects of veterinary practice that can both illuminate and be illuminated by issues relating to human medical care. Physicians and biomedical researchers who are concerned about ethical problems posed by animal research, some of which have a distinctly veterinary perspective, should also discover useful information. Farmers and animal husbandry scientists should be interested in the discussions of the concept of animal welfare and of ethical issues relating to farm and food animals. Environmentalists and environmental ethicists may receive assistance in responding to the increasing number of veterinarians who want to do their part to preserve the environment. He says, although this book should be read by people outside of veterinary medicine, it is addressed directly to veterinarians and veterinary students. There are many other volumes dealing with ethical questions faced by other professions. Veterinarians are entitled to at least one book devoted to their distinctive ethical issues, right? So so veterinary ethics affects all of us. Um, and he's not interested in saying what's right and what's wrong. Um, he just wants each reader to regard the book as a personal companion, an instigator, and an interrogator. He tries to summarize arguments on different sides of various subjects, proposed solutions or further questions, and challenges us as readers to react and draw our own conclusions. But the goal is to uh, ask about everything, right? 
and it's a pretty comprehensive text. Um, let me look at the, I'm holding it in my hot little hands here. Um, it looks at everything from four branches of veterinary ethics to relationships between veterinary ethics and religion, veterinary ethics and the law, veterinary ethics and moral theory. Um, he tries to map the profession's moral values and administrative veter veterinary ethics, right? Where, where does the government get involved? Um, he talks about oath and principles. And then the second part is about interests of animals, the difference between animal rights and animal welfare, the interests of veterinary clients, the notion of the human-animal bond, uh, and what is a veterinarian, and ultimately, who will decide, right? So, in the interest of time here, I want to switch over to a couple hundred pages into this book where he's taking up the question of what is a veterinarian and who will decide. In particular, what he's looking at is... Um, the idea of corporate consolidation, right? He says it's important to distinguish between non-veterinary ownership of veterinary practice from non-veterinary control. It is possible for laymen who own all or part of a veterinary practice to have nothing to do with its management. Such people could simply invest in the practice, allow it to be run by the veterinarians and collect their portion of profits or assume their portion of losses. And although such arrangements are possible, they are surely rare. Owners, and certainly majority owners of business, expect to have some say in the management of the business. In reality, non-veterinarian ownership is likely to mean a significant degree of non-veterinary control. Dr. James Wilson, he is quoted here, who believes that one potential benefit is such ownership for veterinarians is that doctors would not have to concern themselves with many of the details of the management. Quote, think of the amount of time a big company could allocate to practicing medicine as opposed to managing practice if it were owned to own 80 practices. The computing, payroll, and drug ordering are centralized and the veterinarians get to devote all their time to practicing veterinary medicine. Hmm, okay, that's the ideal, right? How about that? He says, uh, Tannenbaum says that taken in isolation, such ownership would present no ethical problems because a truly silent partner who never influences the running of the practice would have no effects on the services received either by patients and clients and no influence on the doctors themselves, right? However, it may be that there is a possibility of less salutary effects. Um, more importantly, uh, Tannenbaum says, I assume the truth of a principle that is sometimes called the other golden rule, and that is that he who has all the gold rules, and that prompts folks to want to manage outside their area of expertise, if I were to summarize the next couple of sections for you. And a few pages later, he uh, gets around to what, and, and this, this book was written in 1995. So I want to share something with you that he calls the profession's worst nightmare, which is what he calls the Petzilla 
scenario. I think his 1995 perspective is quite present because Petzilla now exists and exists here in Lincoln. So let's, let's see what, if we can figure out what he means by that. He says, imagine it is five years from now and we are in the state of nowhere. Several years ago, a pet supply retail company owned and controlled by non-veterinarians decided to take advantage of the state's laws allowing laymen to own veterinary facilities. The company opened a full-service veterinary hospital in each of its stores. The stores are named Petzilla, the Monster Pet Supply Store. He says parenthetically, Petzilla is named after Godzilla, the famous Japanese movie dinosaur that came to the rescue of civilization when it was threatened by a series of evil dinosaurs. Okay. All right, so back to the story. There are now 10 Petzillas in the state. Each store contains several departments, including Groomzilla, the monster pet groomer, Yummyzilla, the monster pet food palace, Toyzilla, the monster pet toy depot, and Vetzilla, the monster animal hospital and pet repair station. The symbol of Petzilla is Bernice Brontosaurus, a huge but friendly dinosaur. Bernice appears in various guises in each of Petzilla's stores in all of its advertisements and in letterhead. For example, all stationery and invoices of Vetzilla, the monster animal hospital and pet repair station, feature a smiling Bernice in a white medical coat, a stethoscope hanging from her neck, and a white baseball cap on her head that reads DVM. Each Petzilla is laid out identically to save costs and to assist customers to find what they want, whichever store they visit. Each Vetzilla, the monster animal hospital and pet repair station, is in the back of the store because Petzilla wants consumers to see all the things for sale on their way to the clinic. Next to each Vetzilla is the Groomzilla, with its six-foot-high and eight-foot-long stuffed Bernice holding a pair of clippers and a shampoo bottle. Petzilla offers somewhat lower fees for veterinary services than many other veterinarians in the state, its costs are minimal for space allocated for the clinics. It purchased veterinary drugs and supplies in large quantities by buying for all of its clinics in nowhere and other states, and it can offset loss leader reductions and veterinary fees with profits from the sale of grooming services and pet supplies. There's an ample pool of veterinarians willing to work at Petzilla's clinics because Nowhere's state veterinary school always graduates more doctors than the number of job openings in the state. Petzilla can attract recent graduates by offering a salary well below the national mean for new graduates and by adding to the space a small percentage of gross clinic revenues attributable to the doctor and commission for sales of items, including grooming, purchased on the doctor's recommendations in the rest of the store. No doctor can own a portion of the business. There are only a few positions for better-paying job of veterinary manager in each clinic, However, Petzilla easily replaces veterinarians who become dissatisfied with working conditions and salaries with other doctors, mostly recent graduates. Indeed, Petzilla has begun lowering has begun lowering its clinic costs even further by utilizing a large proportion of part-time doctors who can be paid even less in salary and benefits than full-time workers. It is able to keep expenses down by employing technicians who earn more than other technicians in the state, but considerably less than Petzilla's veterinarians. Vetzilla's veterinary managers try to assure these technicians uh, reduce to the absolute minimum allowable by law each time the doctor spends with patients or customers. That means us. 
to avoid making referrals to other hospitals, vetzillas. Clinics utilize the services of visiting specialists who can perform sophisticated diagnoses, treatments, and surgeries on the premises. Petzilla markets all departments of its stores aggressively with uh, discounts, punch cards, um, gift certificates, and present at all times in each Vetzilla is someone dressed in a dinosaur costume to keep children brought in by parents occupied and to hand out Bernie-shaped lollipops and coloring books that contain more discount coupons for items in the store. Among their veterinary services are reasonably placed ear crops, humane euthanasia. Um, customers are given a 5% discount off a list of diagnostic medical or surgical services like teeth cleaning. And they've recently instituted a new promotional technique that has generated a lot of excitement in this little, um, I'll let you decide, dystopian or utopian vision. The, for each office visit or inpatient procedure, you get to put a card in a huge glass bowl, and the card's acute, it has your name on it, and at the end of the week, they draw out a card, and each week's re- winner receives a complete refund or fee waiver for the visit and gets a videotape of Bernice plucking the lucky card out, right? You could win a $750 surgical procedure in your raffle. Petzilla's business is good. Several veterinarians in the state who have reached retirement age are having difficulty selling their practices to other veterinarians because of fears that potential purchasers cannot compete with Vetzilla. Petzilla soon expects to account for one-eighth of all annual client visits in the state, but the story doesn't end here. It's planning to open stores everywhere, And this chain can offer consumers one-stop shopping that goes far beyond pet care and includes everything they want to buy. So, right, it's a Walmart business model. I think probably you got that, right? I don't have to say that. So Tannenbaum says, what's wrong with this picture? He says that the conduct of Petzilla's business are not in the interests of clients, patients, and the profession. He argues later in the book that it's inappropriate to associate veterinary facilities with juvenile or demeaning depictions of animals or veterinarians, to advertise discounts, to motivate clients to make medical decisions quickly through offers of savings, to pay employee veterinarian percentage commission, to offer convenience euthanasia and non-therapeutic ear cropping, and to keep veterinary salaries as low as possible. He says, if my arguments are correct, insofar as non-veterinary ownership leads to these things, non-veterinary ownership is not in the interest of clients, patients, and the profession. He argues that practices like Vetzilla, and he says, if there ever are such, and of course we know 10, 15, 16 years later that they're everywhere, will harm veterinarians economically as well as professionally. Many practices today begin with certain ideas about what they believe to be fair compensation and they set their fees accordingly. This will not happen at Vedzilla, whose doctors are paid based not on what veterinarians believe to be fair, but what uh, non-veterinarian owners seek to earn for themselves. 
right? As a consequence of its subordination of veterinarians to non-veterinary business people, vetzilla and veterinary practices like it would harm clients and animals. The less veterinarians are paid or the less willing, bright, and dedicated people will become or remain veterinarians, the lower will be the quality of veterinary services. Clients will be harmed insofar as establishments like Vetzilla manipulate them to purchase services or goods that they or the animals do not need, right? And there's one scenario that he has not included because he thinks it's important to make the case against such practices with the assumption they will not compromise the independent medical judgment of veterinarians. But he quotes Dr. Mary Beth Leininger when she says, if the practice is a corporation owned by non-veterinarians, somebody is making economic bottom line decisions that affect most aspects of medicine, such as the quality of vaccines and instruments. She, can, she goes on, most DVMs, whether economically right or wrong, are not necessarily bottom line driven, but are driven by what is the best choice for the pet and the client. I see corporate structure potentially eliminating that option with employed veterinarians since their paycheck depends on following a corporate management policy. So, again, Tannenbaum's not telling us what we should think so much as he is allowing us to see how he thinks about these dynamics and what the implications are um, for us and for the quality of the care that we might receive and for the way in which veterinarians can or have to manage our expectations. He says the larger proportion of veterinary practices like these, the more restricted will be the ability of organized profession to argue effectively that veterinary ethics should play in the role, a role in providing veterinary services. And he's mostly focused on the capacity for Vetzilla to harm how veterinarians um, earn a living, right, and make decisions. He says that part of what distinguishes a true profession from a trade is that professionals have a high moral obligation to educate the public, to lead, and to show people a better way. Tenenbaum says veterinarians have an ethical obligation, not just to their profession, but to their patients and clients, to convince the public of the great worth and value of companion animals, like our dogs and cats. People must know that one ought not to purchase a pet as a temporary amusement, to ignore it when it becomes old or sick, or to neglect its medical needs. People must understand that taking their animals seriously means that veterinary care is, like medical care, a serious enterprise that sometimes requires economic sacrifice. The fact that a significant portion of the public will tolerate certain ways of dealing with animals or certain ways of offering veterinary care does not render these ways acceptable. As professionals, veterinarians should reject behavior that harms the interests of clients and their animals, and he would include the Petzilla business model as an example of that kind of behavior, right? Of course, Petzilla doesn't exist if we don't patronize them. So I suppose that's worth thinking about, right? 
is we have some um, power in this dynamic. Um, he, he uses another example uh, about what an entrepreneurial ownership can do to a profession by looking at pharmacies. Uh, he said it used to be pharmacies were owned and operated by pharmacists, and uh, now they are owned not by pharmacists but by large corporations. Pharmacists are salaried employees, and the stores sell a range of products, which like cigarettes and sweets, which some people need pharmaceuticals to counteract. And that becomes um, an uncomfortable conversation about, I guess, what constitutes job security, right? Here's the corner of the store where you can go buy the things that your untrained and unmanaged young puppy will ingest so that you can bring the puppy back to our veterinary clinic where we can remove the object that he would not have swallowed if we hadn't actually pressured you to buy it in the first place. Something like that, right? I'm probably um, being a little bit uh, I'm overstating the case, but I think that's the kind of... Um, dynamic here that he's talking about. And the book is really interesting. It goes on to explore a whole range of perspectives on these issues having to do with veterinary medicine, veterinary ethics, um, a conversation about the dignity of being in veterinary medicine, which I think is lost, as we saw in the story about the the little dog Jacks and the social media vitriol that followed uh, from those difficult conversations and that difficult set of decision-making on behalf of a young puppy, a patient who can't speak for himself, um, and the challenges of trying to advocate for him in a complex matrix of thought and how thought becomes action, um, who the expert is, how the expert needs to be or the professional needs to be listened to and respected. So I uh, thought it might be worthwhile for us to take up those conversations to look for resources and to remember how much we need our veterinarians. Do something nice for your veterinarian the next time you go in or even before that, right? Drop them a note. Send a warm cookie delivery. Um, let them know that you appreciate their presence, their skills, their capabilities, um, and let's not take them for granted at all, right? Okay, y'all. That's probably it for us this week. Again, if you're interested in this book, as he, the author says, we all should be, it's Veterinary Ethics, Animal Welfare, Client Relations, Competition, and Collegiality, by Gerald Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum like the Christmas song. Oh, Tannenbaum. It's spelled exactly the same. That'll help you look it up on Amazon. All right. Have a great week. Uh, hang around. The celebration is coming up. We love you. You're listening to KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world.